Elizabeth? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you think of when you hear the phrase, an unsolvable problem? This, what? right here, our friendship. Solid bird, but come on, what do you think? Human conflict and uh, grand unified theory. Grand unified what? You know, like the attempt in physics to explain all the forces. Totally. It's like the most vexing problem vexing. in physics. Okay. okay. Any all Last week, I googled unsolvable problem, and up popped Alan Turing, who is father the... of computer science, British code breaker. Well, la di da. Look at you, Miss Smarty Pants. So... <laughs> I was just helping you out. Okay, thank you. So Turing's entire life is fascinating, right? He's he's a brilliant guy, but I mostly just focused on the Turing machine. It works like this. So ones and zeros are on a tape that scroll past this viewing eye, which picks them out in a sequence in order to solve complex problems. I'm totally, definitely, absolutely simplifying this. But to me, and also after watching like so many YouTube videos, when it's broken down like that, it kind of seems like a really uncomplicated thing used for super duper complicated problems. And I thought that the Turing machine works kind of similar to how we might tackle an adventure, you know, especially ones that are really big and really long and potentially a dangerous excursion. So now you're trying to copy a legit genius's approach? Maybe. Okay. So (laughs) just hear me out. Possibly. Uh, Could be a big mistake. Most likely it is. (laughs) So think about like a big whitewater river trip, right? Like let's take the Colorado through Cataract Canyon. It's anywhere from like five to nine days from potash to height. It's around 100 miles long. It has huge, gigantic, awesome rapids. These like sheer, beautiful thousand foot canyon walls that would make escape really hard if you were trying to escape. You have to feed and move people through this beautiful but super remote part of the country. Like, can you even imagine this? Sounds like a logistical nightmare. Yeah, like it totally can be. The first time I went, I had legitimately 100% no idea what I was doing. But luckily, I was with a bunch of expert river rats who were my buddies who taught me how to cut the big endeavor into these smaller pieces. We thought about where our camps would be. We mapped out the big rapids and we planned for scouting. We figured out how to shop for 15 people for nine days, how to pack a cooler so that you can have ice cream in the middle of the desert. Yes, it's a necessity. Yes, absolutely. Ice cream sandwiches in the desert. So good. But really, they they broke it down step by step from this baffling, gigantic puzzle into small tasks. And I still use that system. It's a good system. It is. Like when adventures get really big, I need, I have to break it up into sections. Complex political and environmental issues don't really work like that. They very rarely have simple answers. If ever. Right. But what if we started breaking those big solves into increments or smaller steps. Hmm. Today, we're going to talk about rivers, specifically the Green River, which is one of the most badass, beautiful, and economically important rivers in our country. Heather Hansman tackled one of those problems that people out West are dealing with, the water crisis. Heather is a journalist, an author, my friend, a skier, and 
a semi-professional river rat. And she has a straightforward, clear idea about the enormous issue of the Western water shortage. I believe we need to talk to each other about water before we run out of it. So, sounds easy enough, right? But what's the crisis look like? And how do we even start that conversation? Get ready, pals. This is going to be a wild ride. I'm Patty O'Connell. And I'm Elizabeth Nakano. Welcome to Safety Third, a show about ideas and how we come to believe in them. Favorite river trip hack. For example, sunscreen and aloe in the cooler. Oh. So it's nice and cold when you put it on. That's my favorite. Pringles. <laughs> that's your favorite <laughs> hack is just bringing yeah. Pringles. <laughs> well, they don't get crushed. Well, that's hilarious because my, fi- my my next question is favorite river snack. So Pringles. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the answer is always Pringles. Okay. Paddle or row? Paddle. Ooh, nice. I started paddle guiding. Like my whole sort of like raft guide world was paddle guiding. Long before Heather and I became friends, I fondly admired her byline from afar. You see, Heather is what I refer to as a real deal journalist. She's a great effing writer. She reports on stories about big issues facing the present and the future of the outdoors. Heather's work has appeared in publications like Outside, Nat Geo, Popular Science, and The Guardian. She was the online editor at Powder and Skiing, and she just published a new book called Down River into the Future of Water in the West. It's about the Western water crisis and the present and future of water. But before she became a real-life April O'Neil, she was a dirtbag river guide out east. The summer after my freshman year of college, I basically was like, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I just decided I wanted to get a job where I could be outside. And my mom had met a guy who ran a rafting company in Maine and, you know, offhand was like, do you guys hire, you know, hire college kids? And he said, yes. So I sight unseen, applied for this job and got this job. I didn't have a car. It was like pre-cell phone. And so my mom basically like drove me to a parking lot in northern Maine and dropped me off there and was like, okay, like, hope this works out. See you in August. We'll come pick you up. (laughs) And I had never, yeah, yeah. I would like maybe been on a river trip once or twice on family vacation or something like that. And it was May in northern Maine, so it was totally freezing. You know, our wetsuits would freeze overnight. (laughs) It's basically like rack by training. Like, you know, it's like basically enforced hazing. Yes. Where they're trying to like be like, okay, you think you're tough? We're going to go run, you know, run the stretch river six times today and flip boats every time. Right. And I think like especially at that point in my life, like I really loved that kind of like, oh, yeah, I'm tough. I can hang with the guys. Like I can prove myself. The guy who trained us, he was like, drunk monkeys could do your job. Like, it's not actually that hard to guide a raft. It's really like, <laughs> the hard part is like, telling people what to do. <laughs> He's like, the boat's going to go down the river. So I think, especially, you know, I was like, sort of a like, shy 18 year old, mm-hmm. being in charge of people, and like, having a voice and being like, okay, I'm going to boss these people around. And hopefully, they're going to listen to me. Or not even hopefully, like, they have to listen to me. Uh-huh. I mean, part of it was just this like, trying to know the river. 
the Kennebec, where I started guiding, there's a 12-mile stretch that's rapids. You run that day after day. The flows are always the same because it's dam released. And it got to this point where we were like, okay, I want to have more adventures. How much can we push it? So we started just like swimming the river. Uh-huh. You know, you'd hop in at the dam and just like swim the rapid stretch and kind of see what that felt like. Oh, my God. And then we went and got like, yeah, like Walmart boogie boards. We're like, we're going to boogie board the river, yeah. which is so – and that's like big. It's super hot, big water. It's not super scratchy and rocky, so you can't actually swim that. Right. I mean, it was also this kind of, like, wild northern Maine, you know, like, in the woods, going to these, like, crazy raft guide campfire parties, like, shooting guns at things, which, like, I'm a kid from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Like, we did not have that where I grew up. So, like, the whole thing felt kind of, like, exciting and wild. E, do you get this? I mean, have you ever been on a river trip? So, I haven't. I kind of want to go on one, I think. Although, the way that Heather put it with this whole freezing temperatures, wetsuits freezing, purposely getting flip part sounds not super ideal for me. And also, what's this whole shooting guns thing? (laughs) Well, for one, I mean, Heather was 18 to 22 years old, right? So literally anything dangerous at this stage is just going to be plain fun. And well, something kind of magical happens on rivers. It's really easy to fall in love with raft guiding, and it's really easy to just fall in love with the straight up beauty of rivers. Rivers are exciting, but part of it is just like being able to be out for a long time and like you have to move at that pace. Yes. Maybe paddling a little further, you can pull eddies and slow down, but you're kind of on, you know, you're like at the mercy of the river timing wise on the flows. And so you kind of fall into this like rhythm with nature. Yeah. And like with the people in your group. Like I love, right. I think that's sort of like the best way to spend time with people in a lot of ways. Right. I guess the Penobscot was, like, the one that made me really obsessed with rivers. Uh There's a dam at the top of it, and it runs into this gorge right off the bat. And there's this big kind of meaty hole called Exterminator (laughs) right in the gorge that just, like, like like mashes people. And we would sit on the edge, like, before I was really guiding up there and we are training and thinking about it, we would sit on the edge of the gorge and just, like, look at that rapid. And be like, where would you run it? Yeah. I love that kind of like, okay, what's it doing now? Where are we going to go? Like, I can watch rivers for a long time. Like, the same way surfers, like, watch waves. After college, Heather combined her river rat dirtbaggery with what she studied in school. She moved out to Colorado to ski bum at Beaver Creek and began to dip her toes into the waters of outdoor journalism. And, of course, she continued to spend time on rivers. Heather continued guiding, and in the process, she fell madly in love with the Green River. That's where she began to wrap her head around water use issues. The green sort of has become this like perfect example of a river, I think. It has rapids, it has flat sections, it has big canyons, it has big open rangy parts, it has weird places that nobody sees that you can explore. It has some of these like splashy, everybody wants, you know, gates of the door. Mm-hmm. It's super hard to get a permit. Everyone wants to do that. And then in terms of like water use too, it has, when I started thinking about that, it has all these, you know, it has ranching, it has industry, it has cities, it has tribes, it has recreation, you know, it had all the like weird pieces of the pie and all the facets of water use, like it had all those things too. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite section of the green and why? Deso Gray. It's BLM land, but it's really, it's deeper than the Grand Canyon at one point those canyons are. Um and it's like enough rapids to be interesting. It's really beautiful. It can be really windy and really buggy, depending on how things shake out. But it's just like you have big beaches. There's a couple old like homesteads, which are kind of cool. You can go explore. There's old 
petroglyphs and pictographs. Like the river is interesting. The whole scenery side is pretty interesting. I think that section kind of has it all. Heather's love of rivers is matched by her concern for them. One of her worries is about new pipeline projects that would pull more water out of the already overused Green River. But that's not all. The green comes out of the Wind River Range and there's big glaciers up there. Those glaciers are receding. There's not going to be as much water coming down. Like rivers are never static, but I'm worried that the way I think about that river is potentially going away. Maybe not even potentially, like definitely going to change. These rivers are drying up. There's not going to be enough water. That sounds really like big and scary, but I don't really know what that means. Like that sounds terrifying, but like, okay, now what? (laughs) The Western water crisis is not unique. It's a sliver of the global water scarcity issue, which can basically be boiled down to a mismatch between supply and demand. There are lots of contributors, including a growing world population, changing consumption habits, and agriculture. So water use out west is our window into this bigger issue. And to understand how the Green River plays into that, you need to understand the Green River itself. Its headwaters are in the Wind River Range in Wyoming, and even though the green is the biggest tributary of the Colorado River, Heather says it's kind of the red-headed stepchild of the Colorado River system. It never gets a lot of attention. So, let's give it some shine. It starts on what's called Three Waters Mountain in the winds. The headwaters for the green in the Colorado runs out of there, and also headwaters for the Columbia, like a branch of the snake runs out of there and headwaters of the Mississippi. So on this like one weird random mountain in Wyoming, you have like the beginning of a lot of the water that we use in the U.S., which I think is really cool. From there, the green runs down into what's called the Green River Lakes in the Bridger-Teton National Wilderness. It's a stunning lake surrounded by beautiful snow-capped peaks. It's one of Wyoming's most popular scenic attractions. Below that is when the green's water starts to get siphoned off. And then it runs into a lot of historic cattle ranches. That's sort of like the main industry up there. And the Pinedale Anticline, which is this big oil and gas field in Wyoming. Heather says that some oil and gas companies do pull from the green. Others use groundwater. She also describes both practices as a shit show. Okay, back to the Green River. After the Pinedale Anticline... This sort of like scrubby, open agriculture and energy land for a while. It runs into two of the biggest cities in Wyoming, which are not particularly big because it's Wyoming, but (laughs) Rock Springs (laughs) and Green River, Wyoming. And those two towns get all their water, all their kind of like municipal water for houses. They water all their lawns and stuff. There's one water treatment plant in town and it has one pipe that goes to like all the places in town. So that's kind of a big deal there. There's two big reservoirs in the river. There's Fontenelle, Dam and Reservoir, which is just upstream of those cities, and they get their a lot of their water kind of doled out through that. And then there's Flaming Gorge Reservoir. From there, you run into Dinosaur National Monument, which is these like big, crazy, beautiful canyons and a bunch of really big rapids in there. And the Yampa comes in from Colorado, which is the last like undammed major tributary of that whole river system. And then it goes back into that kind of like BLM oil and gas land gold miner territory for a while. And then you dump into Canyon, you go through Desolation and Gray Canyon, which is another big sort of beautiful recreational zone. And then you end up in Canyonlands National Park, which is if people, even if you like are not a paddler, I would say that section of the Canyonlands, which is pretty mellow, is so just like stupidly beautiful and cool. Well, what would you say is like the concrete, tangible issues that the green is facing right now? 
there's two sort of like two big major ones. And the first is that there's more water allocated in the river system than actually exists. So if everyone took their legally allocated share, there wouldn't be enough to go around. And then on top of that, climate change is making everything worse. Their flows in that whole river system are predicted to shrink by up to 50% by the end of the century. E, did you guys ever have timed math problems in grade school? Yeah, we had this thing called CompuCat when I was in second grade. Mm -hmm. So every morning we would pull out these worksheets that were supposed to test our times tables. You'd start at the ones times table, move to the twos, et cetera. But you could only move on to the next number if you got a 90% or better. We had these things called mad minutes. They were absolutely terrifying. It was a sheet of 100 math problems, and you had one minute to solve as many as you could, right? Sounds easy enough. Well, I wouldn't solve any. I just spent my entire time looking at the clock and completely freaking out and losing my mind. Oh, so this isn't a new personality thing. No, this is, I've been like this for a while. Okay. (laughs) So, well, I feel like, I feel like that's what's happening here, right? We know there's a major issue, but we can often just stare at the clock and freak out while the problem goes unsolved. And the other side of that is that many of us know, and Heather agrees, that drought has become sort of run of the mill. It's hard to wrap our heads around it, and it's kind of hard to care about it. Like, drought? Well, that sucks, but water comes out of my faucet, so I think we're going to be okay. Right, and that complacency was one of the things that bothered Heather back when she started caring about water use. The other problem, she says, was the material that was already out there. Heather says she wasn't reading anything that made her care. So she decided to write something herself. Even in trying to like write about it and report on it and learn about it, I wasn't reading anything that I was like, oh, this makes sense to me. Or like this actually like addresses what I'm thinking about. And I think that is changing. Uh-huh. And I think part of like the heart of this is like, you know, the southwestern U.S. has been in drought for 20 years now, uh-huh. which is, you know, is normalized, but also is important. Right. I think it's hard to care about things that don't sometimes impact your everyday life. It's hard to care about things that you don't care about. Right. Yeah. Like if you don't have any context on something, it's really hard to like think about what it even really means. You know, water rights and the water crisis in the West to me is so complicated. It feels like when you dig into it, it can almost like cross your eyes and make you dizzy and you almost feel like you're going to fall over or pass out or something, you know? Yeah. Why is it so complicated? Who owns water and who is in charge of water and who gets access to water? Those are like big, complicated questions with like a lot of answers. You know, like federal government, state government, it's like lodged into politics and the environment and sort of like how we've built up society around things. I think because it is so... It's so interlocking. Right. Initially, or like sort of, I was thinking about this and I was like, I want to write about how all these different groups fight about water, farms versus fish or cities versus agriculture. Right. I mean, maybe this is me like being kind of Pollyanna and being like stories can change people's lives, but just feeling like there weren't stories about that being told that felt actionable. But I was like, there's nothing that I'm reading that makes me understand what the stakes are. I was like, okay, I'll like write about like how all these different people, like, who are the people, how do they not get along? And I had started talking to a book agent about it. I kind of was like, well, what about this? Like how everyone fights about water? And she was like, that's like a concept. That's not a story. Like you need to, if you want to get into this, you have to figure out a way to tell the story. 
Coming up after the break, Heather finds her story. The Green River is a 730-mile snake that runs through ranches, cities, national parks, endangered fish habitats, natural gas fields, and provides water for 33 million people. So what is the best way to tell the story of a river that is beautiful, crucial, overused, and at risk? Well, if you're Heather, you boat the whole damn thing from source to confluence. I started in the end of May at the Green River Lakes, which is kind of just northwest of Pinedale, Wyoming. I would be on the river for anywhere from like three to nine days at a time. And then I get off and restock here, see the stretch and then do the, you know, talk to people along the river. Yeah. And I was like decently freaked out when I started. Why? I think because I had sort of you know, had this idea. I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to go do this big river trip and I'm going to be able to see all these things. And then there's that difference between like the idea in your head and on paper and then the like, oh shit, I have to actually do this thing that I thought I was going to do. Right. Yeah. And I had never, I had done some like solo backpacking trips and stuff like that, but I'd never done a big solo river trip before. So I did most of it in a pack raft, which is a little sort of like one person light inflatable raft and it sort of looks like a kid's like a lego boat yeah it's like a little mine's bright blue and it's like big enough that when you sit in it your butt touches the back and your feet are touching the end and mine you can unzip the compartments and put your gear inside of it which is pretty slick yeah the planning was almost like the scariest part of this because i was thinking okay how what gear am i going to bring what boat do i want to take how many miles can i hack through yeah and the pack raft to me kind of seemed like it was the best compromise. You know, like I could carry enough gear in it. I could shuttle it myself. And it turns out that I totally loved that boat. And it ended up being like a really good little solo. There were some draggy, flat, wide, slow sections for sure. But I felt good paddling in rapids. I kind of liked being. There's something cool about like kind of being your own little contained package. Yeah. And then I did a couple stretches. I did Gates of Lador and Desolation Canyon and big rafts, like normal rafts. And then... The last stretch into Canyonlands, I did. I had some friends come for that, and we did it in canoes. Going out on a huge solo trip like this is kind of a daunting adventure. But the actual physical feat was not the most challenging part of Heather's investigation for her book. Water is tied to food. Water is tied to our ability to decide where we want to live. Water is tied to public health. All these things that felt important and sort of like big and scary, it felt like water was kind of like at the root of that. Water is tied to immigration. Water, You know, like you could... You can track it back to so many things. Right. I think I had come in with these like pretty big assumptions about like how people were using water and what it should look like. And, you know, if you look at the math of it, agriculture, especially up in Wyoming, ag uses like 90% of the water in the state. And if you look at it from the math side, you're like, oh, obviously they shouldn't be using as much. And like we should use more for cities or for environmental flows or that kind of thing. And then you go and talk to these people who you know, are so, their families have been ranching up there for hundreds of years. They are so in touch with like every drop of water that they use and so intentional about it. And I think I had had this like really not subtle, like, oh, like we can just like shuffle this stuff around. And like, obviously this makes sense. And then you're like, oh no, these people who have thought about it so much more, who are so much smarter than me, who have thought about it like so much more concretely than I ever have. They're not wrong. Their perspective is just so different than mine. Everybody's just like coming at it from a really different direction. And that makes it harder to, like, figure out how it's all going to work. Everybody I talked to had basically, like, slightly different 
priorities and perspectives. And I ended up hanging out in Vernal, Utah for basically two weeks just because of the way that the permits worked out. And there's a guy, it sounds like he's like maybe not there anymore, but this guy, George, who um, owned a seat cover company. He like came to Vernal, I think from Salt Lake, and bought this seat cover company in the corner of a strip mall. And then he kind of took over the rest of the strip mall. And it was a nail salon and a juice bar too. And you have to pay an extra dollar for a smoothie at the juice bar if you're a liberal. Uh-huh. He, you know, moved there and was like, okay, I need some kind of like marketing scheme uh-huh. to bring people in. And he decided he's going to be the I love drilling guy. So he made this big sign. It looks like the like I love New York sign, but it says I heart drilling. And he would stand on the corner and he looks like he looks like the Marlboro man. He has like a big mustache and a cowboy hat. And he would just stand on the corner, you know, waving the sign at people. And everyone like drives by and beeps at him and prices were low. There wasn't much going on drilling wise when I was there. So things were pretty depressed. It, you know, Vernal kind of rides that up and down gas industry curve. Cause I was like, okay, I gotta go talk to this guy. Yeah. And eventually I was kind of walking by and he was like, Hey, I've never seen you before. What's your deal? And like called me over and I ended up chatting with him and he had come in and sort of been like, yeah, you know, like people care about drilling here. So I'm going to like become this guy. And he really, like, believed in the oil and gas economy, but he was also, like, you know, I told him what I was doing. He was like, oh, yeah, you know, like, I love rivers. I'm a total hippie. (laughs) He had become this figurehead for the oil and gas industry. And when I was talking to him, like, probably four or five people came by and, like, thanked him for what he was doing. But he also was like, oh, yeah, great. It's important. Talk. Yeah, you got to talk about water. You should go talk to this person. You should meet this person. Like, gave you know, we're now Facebook friends. He, like, gave me the names and numbers of a bunch of people. You know, like... I might have my own personal qualms about, like, the ethics of what he's doing, but he was, like, very willing to talk. You know, he's still thinking about water and, like, very willing to talk about it. Did it challenge your own thoughts about what was the right or what was the good thing to do? Oh, yeah, 100%. You go talk to... The ranchers and they're talking about like non-consumptive use and flood irrigation and how much water they actually use and water percolating down into the the aquifer and then you go and talk to fish biologists and they're talking about like temperature and flow rates and like there's so many different things to learn i mean i think dams are such an interesting sort of like or a pretty good marker for that like i'd kind of come in being like oh yeah dams are bad they change the ecosystem we gotta take down dams wherever you can and then talking to people about dams about like yes that's all true but dams also make it so we have water in august in certain places and then we can get it when we want it like there's a value to that stuff too none of this stuff is black and white if it was simple you know enough smart people have been thinking about this for a long time if this stuff was simple we would have come up with a real like a solid solution by now so it's all going to be like little itty bitty motions and compromise and right you know moving the needle a little bit how about this? If you think we're going to run out of water unless we talk about it, what does the opposite look like? Is it stronger management? Is it reallocation? Is it a shifting of the water rights? What does the opposite of running out of water look like? The conservation sort of a can mean a lot of things, but I think it is like conservation across like every facet. And I think also being realistic about we're not going to have as much water as we thought we we're going to. And trying to kind of like rework the math and dial it back so that we're like living with our means of what's actually going to happen. The places where I saw 
the most positive change and the most kind of like action were places where people were getting into the same room and kind of like even when it was tense to start out with like explaining it explaining their priorities to each other and kind of like being like oh you're a human who's like thinking about this and you have like needs and wants what are some of the, of the examples of those like smaller solutions what have people done there's some places where people are working on what like they call like water markets or water banks where you can kind of like contribute your water rights without losing them yeah. into a pot. And I think part of it is like the way water rights are set up in the West, there's this use it or lose it yeah. Yeah. kind of law. So if you don't, which was like set up in the a long time ago to make sure that people didn't abuse the system, but it sets up this legally conservation isn't baked into how people are supposed to use water. And so that sets up this like, I'm going to use as much as I possibly can. So I think finding ways for people to work around that and make conservation appealing even when that's not what you know you're kind of having to like work within a broken law system basically incentivizing people to use less finding ways where people can share or like use you know kind of put water to multiple use that seems like a pretty good starting place is there a clear solution to the water crisis nope <laughs> <laughs> But I think, yeah, I think that's why this is hard because there's not a clear solution. There's a little bit of work now. Like the big sort of news thing recently is this drought contingency plan, which the seven states in the Colorado River Basin signed this spring, which is the first time they've ever agreed to take less than they're allocated. Um, But it only is set up through 2026. It's a big deal because they like there was an agreement and this is the first time they've ever kind of come together and acknowledge that it's not going to work out, but it's like not necessarily enough to really set us on a good course for the future. Yeah. So like there is some wiggle room starting to happen, but it still is there's a long way to go. Mm-hmm. I kind of think about it like a big pie chart. And I think a lot of it is going to come from like shifting the pieces a bit. Agriculture is going to have to use a little bit less. Yeah. Cities are going to have to become more efficient. We're going to have to try, you know, try and like mimic natural hydrographs to hold on to habitat maintenance. That's the hard part about this, right? Like there's not one good solution. It's all going to be a little bit of like jackwhacking around. Nobody's going to get everything that they want. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like figuring out how you can get to that point where people, no specific group feels like they're getting screwed over or ignored and everyone's sort of, I mean, compromise again sounds so like hokey, but I think like that is, that's such a big part of it. Well, how do you make sure that everyone gets to be a part of the conversation? That's a really hard question. That's like a really, really hard question. I know in some of these like big picture Colorado River Basin conversations and sort of policy discussions, tribes have been a group that have been sort of out of the conversation historically in a pretty brutal way. And in a lot of places, they haven't been able to put their water rights to use because of that. And I think that that's starting to change a little bit and that people, you know, from groups who have been disenfranchised in the past are at least getting a seat at the table now. Well, what can we do to help? Knowing what's going on locally wherever you live, I think is a big deal because I think there is some political power. There is voting in a lot of these places where if you know you're paying attention to what the issues are and then, you know, sending that up the chain. And there are, you know, like these like contingency plans in western states like there is you know you've got representatives who are voting on that so i think yeah i think it's like knowing what's going on locally knowing what the issues are and then like using your political power for that 
I think for me personally, I, I far too often get this, like the sky is falling syndrome when it comes to environmental issues, when it comes to politics, conservation, climate change. Are you hopeful? Um, it depends on the day. <laughs> the thing that made me care was like being out there and feeling connected to a place. And yeah, it does sound cheesy and woo, but I think that's like, that's been a huge deal in my life. And I think for most people that I know that being out there, whatever that looks like, I think makes, it makes it seem a little less hopeless. Maybe, maybe. Heather. Yeah. You're awesome. You are awesome. That, I feel like I'm like, feelings. <laughs> no, I don't like the feelings. Um, yeah. No, it feels heavy for sure. It can feel really, really, really overwhelming and dire. So I think it is trying to like not just get so overwhelmed that you like need to go back to bed and try to break it into tangible chunks or like be like, okay, I can, you know, use less water. I can actually look at like what's the, what's the diversion potentially going in on my local watershed? What does that mean? What can I, like, how can I understand that and then decide what I think is the right call for that? And that's hard. Like, that's not easy to do. It feels scary, but it also feels scary to not do anything. You've been listening to Safety Third. Our guest today was Heather Hansman. And to learn more about what she's doing, check out her Instagram at hhansman or visit her website, heatherhansman.com. Also, her book, Downriver Into the Future of Water in the West, is available online and at your local bookstore. Hey, if you like today's show, then scream about it at the top of your lungs. Yeah! You know, Safety Third is kind of like being in an 80s hair metal band. Is it awkward to use that much neon makeup? Is it weird to wear sparkly tight pants? Only if you're by yourself, pals. So tell your friends and fam about the show. And if you have an idea for a guest, send us an email at hello at safetythirdpodcast.com. You can find us on Instagram at safetythird underscore podcast and on the old interwebs at safetythirdpodcast.com. Safety Third is produced by Elizabeth Nakano. Cordelia Zars edited this episode. Additional production help from our buddies at Duct Tape Then Beer. Music by my big brother, Brendan. It's not your deodorant, it's our deodorant, O'Connell. Art direction by Anya Miller-Berg. Fitz Cahal is our creative director. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. And I'm your host, Patty O'Connell. Okie dokie, my friends. Until next time. Keep it tight. Keep it loose. And remember, safety third. Safety third.